Quite honestly, the coronavirus vaccine makes me nervous. I know that there's a long history in America of medicine being eager to use black people for experimentation, but to be significantly less eager to treat black people and to take their pains and illnesses seriously. So with that in mind, the fact that we already have a vaccine and that it's already being given to people, I, like many other black people, see it as yet another experiment being pushed on my community. Thinking through my own fears and reservations, I don't just want someone to explain the science to me and tell me that, in this case, the science is trustworthy and you can trust it. Instead, what I want and what I attempted to deliver with this episode was first to have my fears taken seriously, which I did by starting this episode by examining the history of racism in medicine, looking at what in history has caused the current relationship between Black people and medicine, why that fear is valid, and even looking at how the historical racism of medicine perpetuates and continues to affect Black people today, including the way that COVID has so disproportionately negatively affected the Black community. After that, taking seriously both the history and the present of racism in medicine, I then spend the end of this episode looking at the stakes involved in making decisions about the COVID vaccine. Because even though medicine has historically done a lot of harm to Black people, so has COVID. In this last almost year, it has hurt the Black community disproportionately. And we'll even talk about the science of the vaccine a little bit. To do this, I invited on my friend Symphony. When we went to Chicago undergrad together, she studied the history of medicine and is now a first year medical student at UChicago. And being a black woman, very aware of the historic injustices within medicine and their present realities, she's still the first person that I know personally to be vaccinated. So welcome, Symphony. Thank you so much for having me. Honestly, I was very, very hyped, very excited when you reached out. I spent a lot of time studying this and thinking about these topics in undergrad. And so I'm incredibly grateful to have a space to talk about them more now from a different perspective of being a medical student and also from the perspective of now having the vaccine and being a Black woman and having my intersecting identities and having to think about all of those things prior to even signing on to getting it. So I'm, I'm excited for our conversation. There's a lot of tension around the vaccine in the Black community. And I've seen a lot of people try to point to a lot of different things about this anxiety. But if you really want to look at it, you have to look at Black history. For this episode, we're going to break it down into three general areas. We're going to talk about the history of gynecology, because that's something that Symphony knows a lot about. That's a focus of hers from undergrad. We'll also spend some time on medical experimentation and the history of Black bodies being used without consent. We will specifically focus in on the Tuskegee syphilis experiment because though it is a well-known instance of that, a lot of the details aren't as well-known, but we'll also look beyond that. Then we're going to end talking about other ways that Black people have been shut out of medicine. So let's start with the history of gynecology. Yeah, I think when we first start to think about the history of gynecology and the history of medicine and how it has subjugated Black bodies, we have to think about the position of Black people to science and the reality that science created race. Science created race as a biological factor that then systems of slavery and oppression held up in order to justify the very much irrational mistreatment and abuse of individuals. That's kind of the first and foremost, because foreshadowing to our later conversation on anxiety about this new vaccine that's completely founded in science. Well, science has always been racist. Science has, has been used to justify racial categorization, right? So that's rooted in history very much so. 
But when we talk specifically about the case of the history of gynecology in the subjugation of the Black female body to this foreign science that was kind of spearheaded by James Marion Sims circa um, the early 1800s, around the 1830s, where he began to use over 30 Black bondwomen, women who were in slavery, to test his experimental surgeries to fix the vaginal fistula, which is a very painful surgery where you essentially have to perform. I I won't get grotesque here because I don't know, you know, if if, uh, listeners want to hear, but it's essentially performing very invasive surgeries on women without anesthesia, particularly on Black women without anesthesia, because Black women were assumed to be able to handle pain more than than other people, which is another one of those myths that got cropped up. Same with Black women were more fecund than any other woman, and, and Black women had sexual prowess more than any other woman. It's just one of those narratives that was continuous and completely unfounded. But that's kind of the origin of what obstetrics and gynecology looked like for Black women in this country. It looked like being taken into some plantation hospital, not knowing if you were going to come out sterilized or not knowing if you were going to lose your child in the process of some foreign painful medical procedure that no one talked to you about beforehand. No one told you what was happening. No one said this is exactly what's going to happen because you were assumed to be less than human. And you were assumed not to be able to understand, even though you understand your body more than anyone else. And in midwives, Black midwives in this country had been delivering babies for a century with comparable maternal and fetal mortality rates to novel gynecological treatments at that time, if not better, because it was incredibly experimental. That's the foundation for so much of the medical and in maternal health treatment in this country. And, and that's the real history of it. And so when we talk about there being a deep-seated mistrust in medicine, like those are the roots to the fruits that we're now seeing blossoming. Everything has an origin. And that's part of it for this large story that we're unpacking today. There's so much in there that we could talk about. Just the fact that consent has never really been something that Black people have even really been asked about because we're not considered human. Or that's such a good point that you felt the need to start with like science is where race starts because there's this idea in the West that like science is this objective thing that exists outside of biases and humans, but it's not. Science was created by people who have biases and who have intentions. So it's directed by what humans think and how we approach the world. So race and racism does factor into science. Yes, very much so. Com- completely agree. And in some situations, there can be objectivity. But when you're looking at it historically, we're always influenced. The questions that we ask, the populations that we choose to study, the data that we collect, everything is influenced by our mindset. It's in some ways impossible to completely divorce that from implicit or explicit biases in our job as scientists and as people existing within this global community is to push ourselves to understand our position to try to be as inclusive and as thoughtful as possible in doing that. But yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, the history of gynecology is actually kind of terrifying if you're Black. And to go off of the idea of the way that consent was not really ever factored into the way that Black people have been treated by medicine in the past, that really gets into medical experimentation. Because it has been going on since plantations, both living people, like there was the experimentation on live Black women in the history of gynecology, but there was also a lot of autopsies done on 
slave bodies just because the idea of being like a respectable white person meant that people didn't want their bodies autopsied. So to find bodies to take apart, a lot of times they went to slaves. One of the most famous examples of this is that P.T. Barnum's first exhibit was a woman named Joyce Heath back in like the mid 1830s. He exhibited her around claiming that she was 161 and had nursed George Washington. And then after she died, he had a public autopsy and sold tickets for like 50 cents a piece for people to come watch her be torn apart. So yeah, consent's not a thing when you're Black in history. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that, but I'm not surprised that story rings so familiar to uh, the history of medical schools in this country. So there are plantation hospitals, as I, I talked about a little bit before, which were usually one of the cabins or one of the slave quarters turned into a makeshift hospital where doctors would come in and treat slaves. But there are also slave hospitals, which had for some reason been contested for a good part of the earlier 20th century that failed to want to admit that slave hospitals exist, but they did. And so these were public institutions that were usually funded by medical schools locally in the area because medical students would come in and treat slaves. And the big incentive to that was as soon as an enslaved or a bondsman, they would haul the body off right to the lab and cut them open. And so many of those cases, slaves began to like tell each other, like, if they're going to send you there, don't go because you're probably not going to make it out because the incentive for treating a slave rather than having a scientific specimen or, you know, having a medical model that they wanted to extract knowledge from, it was more valuable. Slaves became more valuable dead than alive to them. And in many cases, that again is something that has been perpetuated throughout the Black community, that their lives are not as valuable alive than they are in their afterlife because then they can be utilized and experimented on and extracted. Knowledge can be extracted from their corpse. So I'm completely not shocked that P.T. Barnum found a way to extract financial gain from a deceased slave woman. Right? And then what really gets me about that story is that was like his first thing. That was the first thing that he ever displayed to become famous for, I guess, like novelties and stuff, was a Black woman. That's a good transition to start talking about Tuskegee, because it's kind of jumping ahead of the story a little bit. Part of the reason why the experiment continued, because it was a 40-year experiment, was because they wanted the men who were in the experiment to die so that they could rip open their bodies. Because, okay, so I guess to frame the story, we start in Macon County, Alabama in the 1920s, which was a rural sharecropper town that hadn't changed much since slavery because it was one of those kind of sharecropping towns where because they were tenants, they never actually got any money because the money they were making was supposed to pay for wherever they lived. So they couldn't really leave because they were stuck to the land, which meant that they couldn't pay for medical treatment or really let their kids go to school because they had to work the land. So Booker T. Washington opened the Tuskegee Institute with the idea of giving Black people access to medical treatment. But then the Great Depression happened and that kind of interrupted the original plan. So the U.S. Public Health Service jumped in to do the medical part of this. And ooh, this is when it gets really, really weird. They thought that Black people had syphilis in such high rates because of just, they called it powerful sex drives. There's a long historical idea of Black men specifically being sexual animals because Black people, not human. So that's how it was. And they thought that because of this difference between Black and white people that syphilis manifested differently in Black people because it attacks your brain later in the disease. But they thought Black people had underdeveloped brains. So they were like, I wonder if it 
acts differently. So they went to test that theory. So in 1932, 399 Black men with syphilis were told that they were getting treatment for syphilis. So they were given pills, but they were not actually effective pills. And they were given spinal taps, but they were really just being observed for 40 years. And that's why I was saying that idea of dead or alive, because it started in 1932 and about the 40s, penicillin was seen to be a cure to syphilis. But because this experiment was about seeing the effects of syphilis on the brain, the researchers wanted the men to die so that they could cut open their brains and examine them. So for 40 years, close tabs were kept on these men so that they wouldn't join the military because the military would probably have treated their syphilis or get medical treatment from anywhere else. And over the course of that time, many of them died. And because syphilis is an STD that can also be passed to children, they pass it on to their spouses and to their children, all because in this experiment that they didn't even know they were participating in and definitely didn't consent to, they were of optimal value dead. The framing of this particular case is exactly what I was alluding to. And science being racially defined is the undercurrent of, of medical treatment in this country in a way that we can no longer shy away from. The Tuskegee syphilis experiment was able to happen because they're, like you said, physicians and scientists alike had this notion that Black brains were underdeveloped more so than their white counterparts, which is counter to every physical examination that had ever been done or every autopsy that had ever been done on a slave in comparison to a white counterpart. And so it was trying to use a justification of science to justify irrationality in a way that you can only see when science is trying to be prescribed onto an irrational logic such as racism. And it was so pervasive. I still question and really fail to understand how such logics were able to prevail for such a long time with blatant evidence to the contrary. And in this case, it is very disheartening, especially when you think about how families and communities were were compensated for the incredible losses and developmental losses that they received because of this experimentation. The fact that as a whole, the country failed to really acknowledge how horrible this experiment was and how detrimental this experiment was to this particular community and the Black community at large. I mean, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, and this is a story that I grew up hearing my grandmother tell me about. This is something that has swept through the community to already add another layer of distrust to the medical institution where there was already a deep mistrust. And if you think about it nationally, the detriment that this experiment did is incredible. I mean, my father still <laughs> has a mistrust of the medical system and he works within medicine. And it's, it's because of things like this. It's very horrid. Right. And there are so many additional issues to the Tuskegee experiment. One of the biggest ones is that even though it wasn't public on the national stage for 40 years, it was public within the American Medical Association. There were published works that basically anyone in the AMA could have access to. So lots of people knew about it, but Black people were shut out of the AMA. So it's not like any of them knew about it, which that's another way that medical distrust is that Black people are often shut out of even being in medicine and practicing medicine. 
that was a really big, big problem. And the American Medical Association has since then apologized to those actions at that time. But Black people couldn't wait. Black people in the South particularly were literally dying every day because of a lack of medical care, which started the National Medical Association, which was predominantly for and by Black Americans and Black American physicians to fill this gap because the mortality rate was unimaginable. And especially when you looked at these rural Southern Black communities that individuals who couldn't afford to get to major cities or didn't have access and resources to getting to major cities, it seemed almost hopeless for them without having Black physicians who would be willing to go into those areas. And that's another part of the story as to basically where this mistrust is coming from because Black physicians had to create their own lane in order to even be able to service patients when they were largely shut out of large-scale hospitals and other facilities in this country. And then if you want to talk about shut out of medicine, in 1900, there were 10 Black medical schools, but 20 years later in 1920, there were only three. And then three years later, one of those closed. So then there were only two Black medical schools within 23 years. And that was like a systematic attack against Black medical students, especially because there were only two schools. White medical schools largely didn't take Black students. And the reason why all these med schools closed was mostly just because of this man named Abraham Flexner and this report that he put out. Ooh, the Flexner report. I could speak to the Flexner Report. It truly roused me up every time, but the Flexner Report was a report published by Abraham Flexner in 1910. It was commissioned by the Carnegie Foundation because they wanted to find a way to standardize medical education. The whole goal was purely to standardize and formalize medical education because some programs maybe had people studying for six years and some for two. And so finding a nice balance and finding a way to just standardize it to make sure that they were producing the best physicians as possible. However, the outcome of this report was one of the most detrimental blows to diversity within medicine. And when I say diversity, I mean racial and gender diversity, because when you look at how many women were enrolled in medical school prior to the Flexner Report of 1910, it was twice that of how many were enrolled afterwards. For some reason, Flexner thought that women should only go to women's schools and that they should not be in co-ed medical schools. And at the time, there were very few all-female medical schools because that's just not how medical education was particularly performed. And then it became very difficult for those schools to develop after the Flexner Report when certain standards of practice were developed that were just very difficult for a privately funded school to meet with their own resources. And so women on a large scale got shut out of medicine. And then if we want to talk about intersectionality, then Black women very much were shut out of medicine because, as you said, prior to this, there were 10 Black medical schools. Today, there's only four. So we're seeing the historical current of this decision today over 100 years later. And all of those schools were closed because they were deemed unfit And Black doctors were said to be best performing for Black patients, which going on Damien Hill Williams, he started the Provident Hospital in Chicago in like late 1800. And that was a mixed race hospital. It provided services 
to everyone. And so it went against this logic that Black doctors seemingly could only provide service to Black patients, and that's all they were equipped to service, when they have such historical evidence to the contrary. Nevertheless, I guess Fletcher was not well-versed in this. So he decided that Black physicians needed to be in their own facilities, that they should not be in non-segregated medical schools, and that significantly decreased the number of Black physicians that were able to enter the medical field. And we talk about this against the backdrop of the rural South being in one of the largest health crises that this country has ever seen. And so to stop the number of physicians that can go work there and also limit the number of facilities that are able to be cropped up because overall medical schools are being closed left and right. And so there is a shortage of physicians. This just created a snowball effect that at the end of the day, those who were most impacted were poor Southern and rural areas and mostly Black Americans. And the thing is that we're still seeing this. We're still seeing the currents of this. When we look at the fact that although Black Americans make up 13% of this nation's population, we only make up 7% of all the physicians in the United States. Only 7% are Black. And that's not even Black American. That's diasporically Black. And so if we want to talk about this vested history and, and barring Black Americans from medicine, we, we see that today. And if we want to talk about it in terms of science, if we talk about the NIH, which is the National Institute of Health, only 2% of the scientists at the NIH are Black. And so when we talk about funding for things like cystic fibrosis, which is known to predominantly affect people of European heritage, or sickle cell anemia, which is known to predominantly affect people of African heritage, and particularly like West African heritage, then it's no surprise that which one is getting millions of dollars more funding than the other, because there's less representation to even get these questions on the table. And that goes back to what we were saying earlier. I mean, science and, and racism and ideas about race are naturally baked into one another and they impact what questions are asked, what's studied, and who's doing the work. It's just so clear that Black people have been shut out of the medical field in so many ways. And one of the extraordinary things about being barred from the American Medical Association and the closure of a lot of Black medical schools was that Black people were forced to kind of start their own hospitals in their houses, which is actually where Daniel Hill Williams started. The Providence Hospital started in his house just trying to treat people on the south side of Chicago. And to train Black nurses. Providence Hospital was also the first school for African-American nurses. And yeah, that's where he did it. The first open heart surgery was done at a hospital started in a Black man's house, which is incredible. In general, big thing, the big tension that I see between medicine and Black people is just the fact that Medicine has kind of been always assumed to be a white profession, which can use Black bodies however it really wants to, which means that this white profession comes to Black bodies with assumptions and stereotypes and with racist ideas. And Black patients then, because they're shut out of the whole process and they know that the medical field has these negative assumptions about them, they distrust medicine. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And it's quite unfortunate because healing is not a white profession. We have had Black healers in this country since the first African stepped onto this land. Healing is a practice that has been crucial and essential to our survival in this country. But when we think about the medical industrial complex and we think about science in the way that science is permeated through the practice of medicine, then yes, that is something that has been predominantly white-led and predominantly in many cases embedded with racial biases and racial prejudices that have led to a deep-seated mistrust within medicine. And as Daniel Hall Williams is an example or an exemplar, we've had Black physicians for centuries now. Like This isn't new for us to now have Black physicians, but when you're up against systems that still make it very difficult for there to be a a large-scale influence of those physicians or a, a greater proportion of those physicians in medicine, then yes, like we continue to see these forms of mistrust as people go to the, the doctor and they can go to the doctor their whole life and never see anyone that looks like them because of the disparity in numbers that we see because of I mean, and that's that's a whole nother conversation, how difficult it is to get into medical school and even to pursue the medical profession as a black person in the country. But all that to say, yes, like we've always had healers. We've had physicians for a long time. But when you look at the prevailing history, it is predominantly or systemically just white. Which brings us to the big part of this show is bringing history to issues of today. So now we're going to talk a little bit about COVID because you can see so many issues of history manifesting through the way that COVID has just ravaged the Black community and feelings towards the vaccine. But just the effect of COVID has been so disproportionate. It definitely has. If we look at it on a local level or local for me, because I'm, I'm based in Chicago, out of 10,000, there were 16.1 deaths in the Black community as compared to white non-Hispanic communities where it was 9.2 deaths per every 10,000, as compared to Latinx communities where there were 10.6 deaths per 10,000. And so what we were seeing is that Black and brown communities were most at risk to die from this disease. And this is not a biological reality. This is not because there's different blood running through black and brown veins. It's because systemically, black people have been deprived of adequate health resources. Black people have higher comorbidities or several different existing conditions such as hypertension and obesity and diabetes because they live in food deserts, because there's been large-scale disinvestment from their communities. Uh, because their pain is not taken seriously. I mean, we can look to Dr. Susan Moore for this. She's a Black woman doctor who advocated for herself, who knew her body, who knew what was happening. And nevertheless, she was ignored because of, I find it difficult to point to anything else but implicit biases in how physicians were allocating resources for her. And that's what it boils down to, because there's still prejudices are baked into medicine. And that's what we're largely seeing for COVID-19. The social determinants of health, such as socioeconomic status, environment, and previously existing health conditions have led to 
an egregious disparity in death rates. And then if we look at it nationally, Black Americans are 2.8 more likely to die from COVID-19 than white non-Hispanic counterparts. And similarly for Latinx individuals, and I believe for Indigenous populations, it was 2.6. So we're dealing with such a huge problem here because these communities that are being most affected, most impacted, are similarly the communities that have been most shut out, most ignored, and historically most mistreated by medicine. So now we have the situation where people see that they are dying at a higher, faster rate than white counterparts because of racism in medicine. And at the same time, they're being asked to trust science. They're being asked to trust medicine. They're being asked to trust that researchers have their best in mind when developing this vaccine that is not based on race. And that's difficult to conceptualize and for valid reasons, for very, very valid reasons. That is difficult to conceptualize. Personally, I have the vaccine. I received my vaccine yesterday and I received my vaccine with hope and with gratitude because I, knowing all that I know about the history of medicine, knowing the, the history of how Black bodies have been, been subjugated and experimented on in this country, did make me apprehensive when I first heard that it was being developed. And then we hear French doctors saying, let's go test the vaccine in Africa, even though COVID numbers were going crazy in Europe. <laughs> but, you know, that's neither here nor there. And so I was, I was nervous to start with. And so I had to fall back to read the literature. I did my research. I read the literature. And I started following people, honestly, on social media. I started following people that were making the vaccine and people who were scientists, and particularly Black women who were scientists and people who could speak to my concerns on this because the concerns aren't invalid. I would never invalidate someone's feelings because I had similar feelings. But I realized that my family, my loved ones, those around me truly have the most to lose. The Black community, in a lot of ways, has so much to lose in not getting the vaccine because, honestly, we, we have been the community that's been one of the communities that's been most impacted by it. And so this mistrust is deeply rooted in, in the history that we just discussed, and it's valid in every sense of the way. And I just want to validate that, but at the same time, urge people to do their research, to listen to reputable sources, and to not fall into the infodemic that we have going on. We're in this stage of just mass media where sensationalization sells. And so we have cases where people are claiming to have gotten Bell's palsy from getting the vaccine, which isn't really how that works and news sources are printing that out and then now people are saying nope we're gonna get a seizure if we get the vaccine right so it's such an infodemic where you can do one post on Facebook and now it's getting shared across the whole community because 
this is it's something that's sensational, even though it's not very much founded. And so I would urge people to really lean on reputable sources and really think about what is what's at stake in not getting it as well. And so I've tried to answer questions. I was just back home for break and I talked in depth with so many of my family members about it. And we talked through their apprehension. We talked through what they and what they not get in, why and why not. And they were very fruitful conversations. And it's interesting that so much of what we discussed cropped up in those conversations. They talked about Tuskegee. They talked about sterilizations and how Black women were forced to go onto birth control in, in some of their communities as they were growing up in the 50s and in, in the 60s. And so I understand it. I get it. I see it. But I think in this situation, science might actually be on our side, which is a tough thing to say after we just we just broke it. We just, you know, we, we went in on science and it's and trusted. And I, but what I want to say with that too is, I would never put the onus on the Black community to now just like open their arms and trust science in some type of blind way. I think that what we need going forward is a science that is trustworthy. We need to see the medical system positioning themselves to show their trustworthiness. We need to see physicians in the, in the institution at large and research institutions really positioning themselves and making themselves trustworthy so that we're not putting the onus on communities that have been traditionally disenfranchised to now just magically trust these institutions because the numbers look good, right? Because the numbers actually work and because, you know, good things are happening, there has to be more of a concerted effort to build trust within the communities. So that's my take on that. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really wanted to, one, validate fears in the Black community because there's this whole culture of like, why would you be afraid of the vaccine? It's science. But there are valid reasons why Black people have apprehension towards science, especially I remember there was a time when it was like because the Black community is being ravished a lot, we should like target them and get them the vaccine early on, which I knew a lot of people who like alarm bells were ringing. They're like, so they're going to bring it to us and experiment on us. So, yes, I wanted to validate the fear and look at why, where that comes from, but also to look at the science around the vaccine itself and the issues that COVID has brought in assessing the vaccine and how we should view the next steps as the vaccine is being rolled out right now. I guess to speak a little bit to the science when we're talking about side effects, because that's something that's really coming up. Most of the side effects are comparable to the flu. It's going to be muscle soreness. It's going to be soreness, perhaps a little inflammation at the injection site, potentially a headache, fatigue, some cases nausea. But those are all literally the same as, as a flu shot would be. And then I know in some cases, a lot of people talked about severe adverse reactions to the vaccine. For Moderna, that only happened in 0.2% of the placebo and I think 0.5% of, of those who received the vaccine. And so incredibly, incredibly low numbers. And, you know, it's difficult to even tie those severe, those severe reactions to the vaccine or the placebo itself. As it's like, if you look at it population-wide, that's the number that would be comparable to just like random severe reactions happening to anything that's foreign that's placed inside of the body. And so. 
I say that not as a form of coercion, but as a form of like, these are the facts. This is the information. I could get into the nitty gritty of how the vaccine works, but I think so many people have made really great TikToks and like YouTube short YouTube videos on how the immune response works to spike proteins. So I don't need to, I, I, I won't give y'all my rendition of that, but I think that, I mean, the science has, it's been peer reviewed. And so the science has shown itself to work. And that was, that was substantial enough for me to go and get it also, because I know it's at stake if I didn't. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you so much for coming. That was my attempt to try to inject some useful information into this long crisis and infodemic. So if you know someone who needs to hear this, please share it. All power, all people, y'all.